0: Good afternoon uh, from Singapore and welcome to the Gulf Intelligence Daily Energy Markets Webinar for the 9th of May 2023. I am Vandana Hari, founder and CEO of Vanda Insights and today's guest host. Crude is uh, staying put on a roller coaster, In the past month alone, we have seen Brent oscillate between a high of $87 and a low of 72. Currently trading around 76.47. So macroeconomic data and the mood in the financial markets has been in the driver's seat for the oil complex, uh, I would say almost since the start of this year. Um, And the ride has been characterized by bouts of panicky risk off selling, alternating with a gradual steadying of sentiment that we see and and very cautious, slow price recoveries in in crude. So what lies ahead for the oil markets? To discuss this and to delve into some key geopolitical developments that are likely to shape the future of the energy markets in the years to come, I am joined today by uh, David Rundell. He is the former chief of mission uh, at the American embassy in Riyadh and author of the book, Vision or Mirage? Saudi Arabia at the Crossroads. We have uh, Laurie Hightayan, uh, I hope I got that uh, pronunciation right, Laurie, who's a Middle East and North Africa director at Natural Resource Governance Institute, and David Five, making his debut on this show today. Uh, David is a Chief Economist at Argus Media. So a warm welcome to all three of you. Uh, David Rundle, I'd like to start with you. You've co-authored a column in Newsweek recently uh, titled Time is Running Out for a Negotiated Settlement in Ukraine. Um, You put forth some very compelling arguments and suggestions, um, which I personally am, am fully on board with. But as I was reading the column, I thought some of those or probably all of those may be viewed as a bit contrarian uh, in the Western capitals. Now, China seems to have tried at brokering uh, peace negotiations between Kiev and Moscow, but it's made no headway. And meanwhile, uh, we have offensive, -offensive, counteroffensive, continuing to escalate between the two countries. Now, the question I have for you is, is not something that you have answered uh, in, in the column and probably is a difficult question, but um, I'd really appreciate it if you could have a go at it, which is where what's, what do you see as the end game in this and where do you see a possible breakthrough or turning point coming from?
1: Okay. Um, I put forth what I considered
2: to be a proposal for a balanced solution, which would meet the requirements of both parties, by both of them having to make some compromises in their maximum demands. Uh, And in particular, Uh, I think it's been clear from the outset that Russia was concerned about the neutrality of Ukraine and the expansion of NATO uh, ever closer to Moscow, and that this was a provocation that many people in the West are unwilling to uh, acknowledge. Uh, They find it quite understandable that the United States would object to Russian missiles in Cuba- but they can't really understand why Russia would object to American missiles, which is what they would effectively be uh, in the Ukraine. So uh, that's a point where the Russians really do need to have some, there needs to be some compromise there. And what I said in the article was that it should be something like neutrality, uh, like we have had for Austria, where the Ukrainians could join the European community, but they wouldn't join NATO. Um, so that's, a, that's, that's the sort of compromise that I uh, outlined in the, in the article. Um, realistically, I don't expect that there's going to be a negotiation until there is a decisive uh, victor on the battlefield. I said in an earlier article that Ukraine has about as much chance of defeating Russia in a war as Mexico would of defeating the United States, which is to say, not much. And that really doesn't matter how many tanks China, let's say, for example, decided to send Mexico. It wouldn't really matter whether China sent Mexico a few tanks or a few anti-aircraft missiles, China would not affect that. And the NATO is not going to determine the outcome of this war. So, the in my ex- expectation is that the counteroffensive is not going to uh, be decisive, and that in the end, the Russians will probably impose a rather harsh settlement on the Ukrainians, harsher than they could have gotten if they had decided to negotiate. Uh, mm-hmm. So, if you want, if that's my, I, I wrote this article in hope that someone would decide that it was time to negotiate. I don't see mm-hmm. that happening. And mm-hmm. I think that. Uh, the war will be probably over by the end of the year, uh, and it will be an imposed peace rather than a, a negotiated settlement.
0: Mm. So, so you mentioned uh, it will end probably as a result of uh, Russia being victorious. Is, is that Yes, how you I think
2: that's probably likely. I right? mean, it depends on how you define victorious. Uh, but I don't really see the I the, the Ukrainians are not going to march into Moscow. Uh, that's for sure. sure. The, the, yeah. the alternative is that the United States goes to war with Russia. I mean, that, mm. you know, if, you know, if NATO decides that, they wanna, that this is so important that they're going to actually have a war with Russia, uh, that could change the equation. But barring that, I believe that the Russians will win. I mm. mean, you're talking, I, I put this in an earlier article, you're talking about a country that when it started, had 45 million people against a country that had 145 million people. A country mm-hmm. that had a GDP, and, and now the Ukrainian population, 10 million of them have left. So they're down to a country maybe of, and, and 5 million are living under Russian control already. So you're down to a country of 30 million versus a country of 145 million. Yeah. Uh, I don't really see how that turns out in the favor of the Ukrainians. Likewise, the Ukrainian GDP you know, is, I don't know, a couple hundred billion dollars a year, and the Russians is, is you know, close to 2 billion or $2 trillion. So, yep. um, So how, how is this? The Ukrainians have no military industrial complex. Everything they get comes from the West. Yeah. At some point in time, as I said, the people in America are going to get tired of paying the pensions of, U- of retired Ukrainian yep. civil servants. So how and you, how the you figure they, the Ukrainians yeah. are going to win is beyond me.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And there are already signs of uh, discontent, um, not just in the U.S. amongst the population, but even uh, in parts of Europe, as you've Well, the U.S. Out.
2: gets a very biased you know, view. I mean, if you watch the American media, yeah. they tell you that, you know, the Russians are losing, that yeah. the Russian army is just incompetent and made up of convicts. Uh, you know,
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, well, it's, I'd, it's, I'd... Not,
2: it's not a very, very edifying uh, report yeah. on the American media.
0: I'd encourage our our viewers to to go take a look at um, um, your uh, column in in Newsweek. Uh, Laurie, turning to you, I I want to talk Turkey with you today, (laughs) literally and and metaphorically. So um, there are general elections slated in the country for the 14th of May. And um, one of the most important questions being asked is, uh, could President uh, Erdoğan lose his 20 year grip on, on power? I'm not sure we'll have time to, to get into that debate um, in, in the show, but um, we've uh, let's talk about what's happening in Iraq um, that is related to Turkey, and I suppose in some way also to the outcome of the elections. Uh, We've heard from guests on the show that at least one key issue uh, that is uh, still outstanding, um, amongst a few at least, um, that needs to be settled before about half a million barrels per day of northern Iraq crude exports begin flowing uh, through Chehan again, uh, is is Ankara wanting to renegotiate a one and a half billion dollar settlement it has been ordered to pay to Baghdad for violating their oil pipeline agreement. Now, and I suppose that can only happen after the results of next week's elections. So, how how do you see this playing out um, for? And and obviously, Kurdistan is a is is losing um, a lot of revenue every single day. Uh, that is, un, it's unable to uh, export its
1: oil. Uh, yeah. So uh, definitely, we would we wouldn't want to discuss like the outcome of or. Pro- Predict uh, the results of the elections there soon, so we can uh, just wait uh, for the results and see uh, who's going uh, uh, to win. If uh, President Erdogan will be able uh, uh, to convince the people again uh, for uh, the need for his presence, or there will be the opposition will be able to really make it uh, through and uh, uh, and win. Uh, so uh, definitely, that's one part of the issue related to Iraq and Kurdistan. But I think the other so it's, it's, the problem like the Turkish renegotiating the settlement, etc., is one small part of this issue. The bigger mm. issue is with Iraq itself, Baghdad and Kurdistan and Erbil. So this is something that is not new. This is something that is not a surprise that comes about this issue of uh, Kurdistan selling ga- oil or gas to, uh, through Turkey or through any means uh, to the world. This has been something that has been going since the uh, if you want the new Iraq and it will continue if the root causes are not solved. At the end of the mm-hmm. day, I remember in 2010, I used to work in Iraq uh, through, an, our, uh, through our organization. We used to work with the uh, parliamentarians there, about, about, with the government there about the need to have a new, uh, uh, if you want, new oil and gas law. This is 2010. We're in 2023. Mm-hmm. They're talking about like the potential of passing a new and the, a new updated oil and gas. It never mm-hmm. happened. Oil and gas, no. Uh, the constitutional provisions that are uh, um, uh, that have different interpretations still are the same. Uh, Kurdistan has its own understanding of the constitution and its right to exploit oil and gas. Baghdad has its own understanding of of you of regions such as kurdistan of using the oil like and gas so basically there are root causes that are not being solved they're go, they're only solving the problems that are coming out uh, and like trying to solve it now they're saying that yeah this is putting a lot of pressure so uh, on, on on the kurdistan and even on baghdad so i think it's more than technical. It's not an issue of who's going to open the the account in Citibank, who's going to look at it, etc. It's more about like the reading of the constitution. If they're not going to have a proper reading, understanding, final reading, and oil and gas law, you will continue having this problem every f- couple of years. In two thousand nineteen, we had the problem. Now in two thousand twenty three, so it's a couple of. Years. But I think the the issue of uh, Turkey is something that will come after the election. So again, we're going to yeah. see if Erdogan is going to be uh, president again, or the new uh, govern- or there will be a new leadership, a new government, and then we'll have to wait to see like, how they will solve these issues. Because President Erdogan, we know, we've uh, tested him for 20 years, it's expected what, what he wants to do, but uh, not for the new leadership that come. so uh, yeah, we'll yeah. have to wait
0: so you think uh, is there a possibility that uh, these exports could remain
1: shut in for even months conceivably uh, look i don't want to have uh, any projections just saying that if turkey will stay at its position that even if an agreement is reached between uh, baghdad and erbil but they want an agreement uh, and what kind of agreement is it only about like this uh, 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 how to pay the 1.5 billion or it is more about like longer term guarantees and who's going mm-hmm. to give the longer term guarantees yeah. so it depends on all of that so yeah i think it could it could happen soon it could happen like after a month
0: yeah but but clearly as you say uh, there there will be ongoing uncertainty because of the very complicated relationship between our uh, and and baghdad right. uh, david 5 uh, crude has been jolted twice in in two months by by fear and panic in the financial markets in march it was round one of the banking turmoil and at the end of april it was what i would call turmoil 2.0 uh, with the collapse of the first republic and then last week um it looked like the jitters were being amplified by the fed chair um Powell ruling out rate cuts this year, something the markets have been banking or even betting on, and of course the U.S. debt ceiling impasse. Do you think this sort of manic market behavior that we that we have seen, especially amplified over the past couple of months, is uh, par for the course for the rest of this year?
3: Well, I I mean, it's a great question. Um, I think uh, you know it's certainly playing in to across the commodity complex. I mean, let's let's remember where we are. We're we're still coming out of the after effects of a pandemic three years ago, even although that's been declared officially over as a global phenomenon. Um, We have the war rumbling on uh, in Ukraine. And so there are still major question marks about commodity supply out of the world's biggest single commodity supplier, which is Russia. Um, And I think it's Testament to the economic and financial concerns uh, that, with all those supply-side issues that are still rumbling away in the background, benchmark crudes are around about seventy-five dollars a barrel. Um, you know, um, I think you've mentioned the debt ceiling. Uh, Let's—I think everyone hope that uh, sanity prevails in Congress and they they manage to. Um, avoid a, a US default, because that would really send the global economy into a tailspin for that to happen. So hopefully, mm-hmm. wise counsel will prevail over the next couple of weeks and avoid that. Um, there's been a lot of talk about the US dollar, which has lost about 11% in value since its peak last autumn. Uh, A lot of people saying, well, the commodity complex may be supported by further weakening in the U.S. dollar. But I think you hit on a a crucial point there, which is, you know, inflation is not yet dealt with. Uh, Mm -hmm. And in that environment, our working assumption for many months now is that the U.S. Federal Reserve is most unlikely uh, to begin, uh, you know, loosening monetary policy uh, mm-hmm. before the end of 2023. Now, of course, all bets are off if mm-hmm. we fell into a, uh, a steep recession. Uh, you know, we, we're, we're not forecasting on the basis that that's what happens. But our sort of oil demand model really is running on a view that uh, the Atlantic Basin enters a fairly mild recession in the second half of 2023. Uh, it begins to recover uh, in the early part of 2024. But, you know, I think we've got significant economic headwinds that face the Atlantic Basin economies in particular.
0: Yeah. So uh, on the, the Fed's uh, pivot or or no pivot, you are in company with uh, with at least Barclays and Goldman Sachs, it seems. Um, as we have uh, the third headline in, in today's digest, it uh, seems Goldman Sachs is also uh, advising clients not to bet on um, the extent of rate cuts that, that some in, in the market uh, seem to be betting on. Uh, you alluded to, um, to to demand and and. That was going to be my my next question to you because one of the the challenges for the oil market, of course, and and those who are watching it, stay uh, who are exposed to oil prices, not necessarily in the oil markets, just just watching with you know their jaws dropped at at ten percent up and down swings uh, on a weekly basis. Is how how are the markets uh, or those who are selling off oil, for instance, in the in the panic sell off mode? How are they connecting that, whatever is happening in the financial markets with with the bank failures or the debt ceiling or the the Fed comments with oil demand? So if you look at global oil demand growth forecasts, you know, and just just to look at, for instance, OPEC and IEA and EIA, we see the U.S. EIA at the the very conservative end. with 1.4 million barrel per day year-on-year growth and we have OPEC at the at the other extreme end with uh, with 2.3 million barrels per day I'd like to ask you where what's what's your house view where where do you sit with your projections on oil demand
3: okay now Argus media Argus Consulting are the, the side of our business that makes projections for commodity fundamentals. Uh, We've got an oil demand growth number for this year of about 1.8 million barrels per day. And of that total, we've got about 700,000 barrels a day of growth out of China. So we're certainly on China. I think we're maybe at the conservative end uh, of the spectrum. There are a lot of people talking about a million BD plus uh, from China. Uh, We think recovery in China uh, although it is ongoing, we think it's going to be a fairly bumpy ride. And as long as the real estate sector in China is
0: struggling—that's
3: mm. twenty-five percent of China's GDP—it's very diesel-intensive. It's very commodity-intensive. Commodity and we think until we see a major uptick uh, from the real estate sector and 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 the construction sector, uh, you know, Chinese recovery may flatter to deceive a little bit.
0: Yeah, I'll, um, I actually wanted to come back to you a little bit more on, on China later. Uh, but David Rundell, uh, demand is certainly one um, very crucial uh, market metric that um, that OPEC plus and within that Saudi Arabia uh, must be keeping a very keen eye on. Um, we had the IMF last week um, project that Saudi Arabia needs uh, $80.90 cents a barrel to balance its budget. Um, of course, the break-even price is lower than the past two years, according to the IMF. But it's of course way above where where crude is is trading today. Um, the, and um, it also said the kingdom will run a, a budget deficit. Uh, in fact, the kingdom came out with its uh, Q1 um, data. The GDP had decelerated to three point nine percent in the first quarter. Um, after you know, compared with the stellar full year expansion of eight point seven percent last year. Um, a, a $770 million budget deficit as well in Q1 as uh, government spending outpaced uh, any increase in revenues. Do you see the fiscal and budgetary considerations impacting how um, the kingdom steers uh, policy decisions within OPEC Plus?
2: Well, let me make comments before I... Um try to answer your specific question. You know, I was the economic uh, counselor in the American Embassy in Riyadh for some time. Uh, with all due respect to the IMF, this break-even number is something that people like to put in the newspapers and I find it almost meaningless. Yeah. Right. Um, break-even gives you a price you any quantity and your revenue is a factor of both price and quantity. So what are you talking about really? It's a, it's a number that people like to read in the newspaper. The second thing is budget deficit based on what budget? I mean, there's a great deal of um, capital expenditure in the Saudi budget, which, can, which is discretionary, which they can turn on and turn off. And when they have a problem, they usually turn off capital spending and they have certain Salaries, for example, things they have to pay, they do pay that. but you know, there's a lot of capital expenditure that is discretionary. So I don't really put a lot of um, in fact, I don't put any credit in that in that comment. Um, the second uh, question is about Saudi GDP. Which, if you look at Saudi GDP figures, they completely depend on the price of oil. They're all over the place. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's no country in the world, major country, certainly no G20 country, where GDP goes from you know one percent negative to eight percent positive in the course of two years. I mean, mm-hmm. it doesn't <laughs> happen. So those are those are not very useful statistics uh, when it comes to Saudi Arabia. Um,
1: the question is, is, but the be, question you have uh, about is
2: about the budget. You want to know about. Is out uh, to know
1: no, no more
0: so. Well, just it's keeping our audience in in mind because and and I'm I'm glad if you know very welcome if you want to bust some of these myths and and uh, you know uh, especially the ones that are propagated more in in the in media reports um, because there is this sort of a. Um, received wisdom, if you will, in the markets that $80 is probably a floor that OPEC plus read as Saudi Arabia would, would try and defend for crude. So, uh, you know, that's the sort of angle that the-, the Well, that's you
2: know, a whole different question. I mean, that's mm-hmm. a whole different question. I mean, that is, and I think that's probably right. I think, you know, the Saudis would like to get as much money as they can without driving the world into a recession and therefore destroying demand. Mm. That's been their policy all along, and that's still their policy. And I think right now they they think that 75 or 80 is some is is a is a reasonable number that they can hope for without destroying demand. So mm-hmm. yeah, I don't I don't disagree with that number. Uh you know, okay. 75, 80, 70, somewhere in that range. Um yep. but that's a different number than this break-even number. But I agree right. with that number. Yeah. Um, okay.
0: So you wouldn't conflate, you you wouldn't advise anybody to conflate the, the two, that this is a budget break-even number, and hence that is the the sort of level that they would try. No, I
2: think they would, look, they, if, they, if they had a budget surplus, would you think they would say, you know, we have a budget surplus, so gee, I guess let's make oil $40 a barrel because we have a surplus, we don't need the money anymore? No, I don't think they're going to do that. They're going to try and get as much as they can. And so would you.
0: Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Uh, Laurie, I wonder if it's any coincidence that that Turkey is finding um, a billion barrel oil field um, just ahead of elections, which uh, President Erdogan says can pump up to 100,000 barrels per day. Uh, Then they recently also started production from the uh, offshore uh, Sakarya gas field. Um, Let's talk about the gas field first, because um, it gets also quite a bit of press as uh, you know, whatever potential new gas sources in the region that the EU that that the Europeans can get their hands on, my question to you is, you know, given that that Turkey itself needs and could use that gas, do you see Turkey actually wanting to export it to to Europe? I mean, why wouldn't they just use whatever oil and gas they find, especially specifically gas at home?
1: Yeah. So, or you think of it that. Turkey uses the gas as it finds, and then don't just, that means that Turkey is going to buy less from the market and that, that whatever it doesn't buy can, can be like in the market okay. and whoever wants to buy it can buy it. And definitely yeah. this, is the, uh, this is part of uh, Mr. Erdogan's uh, policy when it comes to energy, that independence that he had been talking about, and he had mm. been a very much like a pushing for discoveries happening in the country. So indigenous discoveries. So the the gas field that happened like a couple of years ago, not long ago, and that he really pushed for it to really for the first gas to come soon and not be mm. uh, not take long same for the discoveries that are happening on oil uh, on the oil side as well he just wants to keep pushing that agenda of energy independence so that mm. he could really uh, ease the budget and makes less pressure on the budget because 90 percent or more than 90 percent of turkey's needs of energy is important so that's a lot of uh, pressure on the budget Uh, So Mm. definitely that is the trend. Now for the announcement, definitely we can read it under like this new discovery announced uh, days before the election. Conveniently. Of course, these are the tools that politicians use, especially Mm. during elections, because during elections, everything becomes crazy and everything becomes allowed, I guess. So, but definitely there is a trend in the policy uh, of the uh, Turkey. And I don't think that whatever leadership will come, will change that policy. They do want to Mm. become as much as they can can independent. It's not like one discovery here and one discovery here that will make them independent, Mm. but they are on the track of uh, becoming as much as they they can, less dependent. Uh, Mm -hmm. and uh, And then I guess Turkey's aim is more like to become the transit hub. So and, play mm. that role. and that was something that was really empowered by uh, Russia as well, because politically it was yeah. convenient uh, to yeah. push uh, Turkey to their side. So then they said that, yeah, why not Turkey becoming the next hub for the already because there is azure gas coming through. There are many, uh, many uh, from many sources like the, the Turkish uh, the, uh, that uh, gas is flowing through Turkey. So why not as well for Russia to boost its uh, And increase its um, its gas and uh, through Turkey, uh, which is something that that Turkey would want to have to do. Yeah, Yeah.
0: though uh, going by trading hubs and and just having uh, watched. Uh, attempts uh, around the world uh, for for countries and cities to set up trading hubs, and uh, I think that will be a much longer um, process than than developing the. And um, I agree with you; the gas field was indeed developed in a remarkably short time. So maybe that the same will happen to the oil field as well. Uh, shall we have the survey question? So uh, our question today is: uh, the biggest driver of volatility in crude over the next four weeks will be. Uh, the debt ceiling crisis in the US, the banking sector stresses in the US, or the OPEC plus uh, policy meeting on June 4. And of course, you know, there's always uh, an option, all all Mm -hmm. of them are going to drive volatility. I'd like you to pick which you think would be the biggest driver of volatility. And of course, that can be in any direction, uh, up or down. And while we wait for the results, um, I'll go back to you, uh, David Fife. You... um, so you alluded to, to, to China, and I'd love for you to expand on that a little bit because there's a great deal of interest, obviously, in the oil markets because you look at what were the potential bullish factors when we started out this year, and one was um, big disruption in, in Russian supply and the other was uh, Chinese rebound. Increasingly, I don't see anybody using the word rebound in, in reference to China. We have that April data uh, figures um, out today. Um, exports were up eight and a half percent year-on-year, which is a decent growth, I think, but not, uh, you know, not as decelerating clearly compared with nearly fifteen percent growth that was seen in March. Uh, commodity imports were down across the board, including uh, crude oil, coal, copper. Um, crude imports averaged about ten point three million barrels per day in April, uh, which is down quite substantially from twelve point three million barrels per day in March. So um, what do you see in terms of, so you, you, you're you talking earlier a little bit about your expectations for Chinese demand growth. Um, what are your expectations in, in terms of their, uh, do you see like a first half versus second half recovery? Do you see it accelerating much more in the second half of the year? And uh, what are your expectations in terms of their um, crude appetite and, and fuel exports if, if you look at that as well?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think, I think our view would be that you you would expect in the case of China that was essentially uh, shut down much of its economy for the best part of three years. You would expect much of the rebound to be pretty front end loaded. Um, mm. We did get pretty strong four and a half percent GDP growth in the first quarter in China, um, but as you note, uh, you know commodity imports that they're, 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 they're sort of they're better they're stronger than they were um, uh, last year. We saw an overall contraction in commodity imports last year. They're at least growing again on a year-to-year basis for the first four months of the year. But it's pretty anemic. And I think the concern for China is that a lot of their uh, the export markets for their, their manufacturing, merchandise, goods, exports uh, are in the process of slowing down. Exactly. So, you know, the manufacturing PMI data that came out the other day was pretty weak. Service sector PMIs were pretty strong. So yeah. we've got a number that's sort of 5%, you know, finger in the air, 5% GDP growth. Uh, mm-hmm. Pretty close to target this year is our working assumption for China. But really, the, the idea that it's going to accelerate through the second half of the year is going to be pretty difficult to achieve uh, mm-hmm. overall. Um We did think the European diesel market was going to be struggling to find Mm. replacement supplies. One of the great hopes was that uh, potentially China could help fill that gap. Not necessarily Mm. Chinese cargoes moving into Europe, but Chinese cargoes going into Southeast Asia and Mm. liberating maybe diesel supplies uh, from east of Suez that could help fill the European gap. That may well still happen, particularly if domestic demand and particularly construction in China remains relatively weak. So, yeah, there's there's the potential. I think that uh, you know uh, refined products exports out of China uh, remain relatively robust because domestic demand is lagging. Um, what they'd like to see.
0: Indeed. And and diesel doesn't seem to be a problem at all, from, from what I can tell as of now. Of course, we don't know what, what happens, I mean, in generally in globally and in the OECD well, countries, right? It's considerably diesel, under pressure.
3: Diesel cracks are back below $15 a barrel. Yeah. Um, yeah. We expected them. Many other forecasts did, expected them to remain pretty robust in 2023 because of Europe's need to pull in imported supply long haul. Yeah. Um, And gas uh,
0: substitution to some extent, I suppose,
3: which also turns out isn't really needed right now. Natural gas now also back below uh, $10 a million BTU in Europe. So, so far the market is looking much more benign in terms of uh, uh, finished fuels, whether it's gas or diesel. But, you know, let's wait and see what happens to Russian supply over the balance of the year. There is some talk about G7 uh, trying to enforce the price caps a bit more rigorously than yes. they have up to now. So there's a big question mark still over uh, Russian uh, crude and products exports to other destinations.
0: Indeed, we we have a headline on, on that in our digest today as well. They're talking of uh, cracking down on ships that are doing STS transfers or maybe turning off their sat nav systems. Um, though personally, I feel... Um, uh, you know, good luck uh, trying to get an agreement across the sure. <laughs> EU on on that one. Um, but uh, I think we've, we've run out of time. We've had a wonderful discussion. We saw the survey results uh, pop up there uh, just a while ago. Twenty seven percent each. Forty more than forty five percent. Could we just bring up the results again, please? I think um, the majority were saying that the debt crisis, uh, the banking crisis. Sorry will be the biggest uh, factor of volatility and then uh, evenly split between the debt crisis and our crisis is all over <laughs> and the OPEC policy meeting. Hopefully OPEC plus doesn't create another crisis there. Um, well, with that, uh, so we'll wrap it up here. Thank you so much uh, to all my three guests, David Rundell, Laurie Hightayan, and David Five. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.